This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Chopper's Politics Podcast, recorded live here at the Red Lion Pub in Westminster. This may well be the last time you hear my dulcet tones, listeners, as we record this podcast on Tuesday, the 4th of July after a pint of black velvet with the former BBC chairman. More on that later. If you don't know, and if you don't, where have you been for the previous 360 episodes of this podcast with our 8.2 million listens, I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at the Daily Telegraph, and it's great to have you here. On today's episode, a simple proposition... An exclusive interview, the exit interview, with Richard Sharp, the outgoing chairman of the BBC. We chatted about bias, the future of a licence fee, the dangers of Twitter, and a certain Boris Johnson. I started by asking Richard Sharp one question. Why are you resigning? I stepped down from the BBC because I formed the view that I couldn't do the job that I'd arrived to do. Mm. Just the noise of, of the reporting yeah, of what look, happened. The BBC faces a huge amount of challenges, and that was what attracted to me in the first place, because I thought I could bring uh, my existing experience to bear on the BBC to help it develop and change in a way to be competitive. And you have to form a judgment, if you're the chair, yeah. can I remain effective in seeking to do what I want to do? And the judgment has to be made in the interest of the institution. Was the noise that forced you out created by the BBC itself? No, no. Um, you recognise it was legitimate reporting of what uh, happened? Absolutely, absolutely. I said it once, the BBC does have a <laughs> reputation for 360-degree yes. firing squads. Yes. Th- there was a substantive issue that needed to be reported. The way the story developed, it had consequences. Yes, we'll come to that. Yeah. Did you feel sad you're leaving earlier than you expected? Yeah, of you... course, because the job isn't finished. No. And, and what... also because... I enjoyed working with the people at the BBC, and it's just, everybody has that sense of fulfilment if you know that you're having a constructive effect. And I certainly felt that I was making the right level of a contribution, had a terrific board. I really enjoyed working with the people at the BBC. It was a new challenge for me. So I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I, I felt I was doing something purposeful, and I was mm. doing something purposeful. Mm. So that's obviously why I'm sad to leave, because I felt I had another year and a half 
to contribute. Do you wish this guy, Sam Blythe, had never got in touch? Look, I think I've known Sam for a long time. He was a friend. I wish I'd had a better yes, a minute sense. conversation, maybe. With no, I'd said I should have said, "Sorry, mate, can't help you. I know it's the <coughs> pandemic, but you're going to have to find your way to case on your own, mm. and I can't do that. That was an error of mine." And Simon Case, the, the cabinet secretary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What would you have done differently? You'd done that that thing. Yeah, you said. that would have been helpful. That yes. would have been helpful. <laughs> And what were you doing in, in number 10 at the time? You were advising well, Richie Sunak, weren't you, as yes. Chancellor next door? In no, I was, I was brought in during the pandemic. Actually, the reasons why I ended up with the BBC is a result of the work I did. So, for example, I created one of the most successful interventions, which was the film insurance scheme, which had 100,000 jobs going. Mm-hmm. Films kept going in this country, That's but right. they didn't elsewhere. That was it, COVID support. It was COVID support. There's been an independent conclusion. It's the most effective COVID intervention. I also also the architect of the Cultural Recovery Fund, yeah. which kept the entire cultural industry going. But also I had the opportunity to take my private equity skills to bear. So I helped that with the development of the National Inf- Infrastructure Bank, which hopefully will continue to work forward on that. Also the Life Science Venture Capital Fund, because that's a critical industry. We'll come, come to that later, if you like. And also just uh, reported a few weeks ago, I helped structure the CELSA capital that went in for the government and the government got all its money back yeah. plus interest. So that was effective. And then I also helped with the financial support for Rolls-Royce and for British Airways and also discriminated where money shouldn't go. I felt very proud, actually, yeah. of the contribution And you were doing things, and it's so hard to, and, to know you're doing things of well, value in government. Well, the, the Treasury team were terrific. Mm. You know, they're working around the clock on mm. the pandemic. And I have to say that I'd heard in the past that people from business couldn't work effectively mm. in government. I found that experience... The un- unpaid role, was it? It was unpaid, yes. But that, if you remember at the time, I know I got the call in March, I guess, 2020, from Rishi, would I go in and help? And of course, you know, at that time, you know, we were facing catastrophes. As the wave of the pandemic broke over correct, the country. Correct, yeah. And then so you were in, in number 11 or your treasury? I was in number 11. So in fact, I felt as a result of meeting and spending time with the film industry and with the cultural in, uh, culture industry, I realised how central, you know, the creative arts are yeah. economically and for our future. And then when the BBC situation arose, when Charles Moore withdrew, and a friend of mine who's an actor sort of said, look, you know, you could really, I thought, well, actually, this is another area I can make a contribution. And I'm sure like you and like almost all of your listeners, the BBC has helped define who we are as individuals and as a society. And coming from the commercial background, where I'd had some commercial media experience, I did recognize that BBC needed to reform and that I could actually potentially add value. And so that's why I applied. And you got the job when? That was in when you were given the job, 2021? I think it was, I think I started February 2021. Hmm. And it went really, it was going really well. You enjoying it? Yeah. Lots of meetings and you got into the structure. I mean, I spent a lot of time challenging the BBC. Yeah, yeah. But what was gratifying was how welcome that yeah, was. Yeah. And, and, and that told me that the BBC, the people of the BBC recognised, and obviously they should do because they're consumers of whether it's Netflix yes. or Prime or Spotify, they recognise they're living in a highly competitive digital world and they also recognise that a bit of external DNA yes. would be constructive. And that's the point of our chairman. But by then you'd already had this contact, hadn't you, with, with this businessman, Sam Blythe, and you mm. hadn't raised it when you were being interviewed for the job. Yes, exactly. And that became your undoing. But you had raised it with Simon Case verbally. Well, look, obviously, yes, Simon Case is the head of the cabinet office and within that is proprietary and ethics. I had a conversation with him. You know, it was a short conversation and he was flat out in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah. But I was 
having the conversation with the head of civil service. Well, I took comfort from the fact that he said I w- wouldn't be involved. Yep. Uh, I raised the BBC issue with him. I took comfort from that. And what I should have done was over-communicate because nine months later, mm. something happened. But at the time of my going in to meet the committee, I you know, clearly should have over-communicated and said there's something, there's a conversation I had with Case which could give rise to something which yes. could be perceived in a certain way. And that error was mine. When you say the committee, that, that's the MPs who were, who were signing no, off no, the appointment? No, 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 no. The, the recruitment committee and the MPs. Now, as you will have seen, the uh, Heppenstall said that that failure of over-communication didn't invalidate the appointment. No. So that error wasn't in itself the reason for the resignation. The, re- the reason for the resignation was entirely to do with a judgment about, as a consequence of all that happened, yes. could I be effective as the BBC chair? And it became harder and harder. Uh, have you talked to Simon K? His notes of that conversation didn't include the words BBC on his on Well, his after the story notes. broke, I had a brief conversation with him. I'd understood that subsequent to that conversation, he then looked at his notes and wasn't sure what he could, uh, he could recollect. And if people want to look at the appendix in the Heppenstall report... Did you feel let down by him? He was your alibi. He was the person who would say, it was raised with me, and I said, don't worry about it. It would have been helpful if he'd had a better recollection, but, you know, it, it is what it is, right? Yeah, recollections may vary, yeah. sadly, in this, in this case. Are you, I mean, are you surprised you didn't think you'd keep a fuller note of what, the importance of what you were saying to him? Uh, He's uh, no, I, and, and bear in mind, I, I didn't take a note. No. I, I was communicating with him. And there was a, bit, a lot on at the time. He was, it he was, was the end of, end of a long day. This was during the period that people, if they weren't going to work, had to stay in their homes. Yeah. It was an under-resourced yeah. number 10, number 11. Mm. I was working flat out. He was working flat out. So was it a, a chat in the corridor or was it in his no, office? No, I, I went to a meeting in, in the cabinet office, but it was maybe a 15-minute meeting. About something else. Yeah, but, but it was a 15-minute meeting. So yeah. would he have had 20 things that day to deal yes. with of massive importance? Yes. Absolutely. And on, no, no one's with him, so no one was there with him. Mm-hmm. I don't want to labour this point, but it is so important to why you had to leave in the end. I mean, were you worried about embarrassing Boris Johnson? Is that why it wasn't raised when you when you when you interviewed by the recruitment group and also the MPs? No, no, I, no. The issue that, was I thought as a result of my conversation with Case that it had been dealt with. But you didn't raise it when you were being formally interviewed for the job. Later, well, latterly, I wasn't a time traveller, so at that stage, nothing had happened. Exactly, there'd been no communication. Nothing had happened other than my saying this guy Blythe is going to call you because he'd like to do something. There was no knowledge of whether something would or wouldn't happen. And so, to my mind, having raised the BBC with Simon Case and him saying, fine, Mm. I took false comfort from that. I think he was saying fine in relation to me and him. And I should have thought about, was it fine in relation to the people interviewing me? Yes. I just... At that point, I felt, felt it had been dealt with. But, but the Blythe conversation wasn't, wasn't raised when you interviewed for the, formally for the job. That's right. And, and you, why didn't you raise it with the MPs in public or with the... Because at that stage, it was just a conversation. It. I didn't know anything was going to happen. I didn't... didn't yeah, yeah. yeah, I felt I'd communicated the case, and yeah, obviously yeah. wrongly, I should have ever communicated. Do you think you became a lightning rod for what I call Boris derangement syndrome? People just go a bit bananas. Anyone near Johnson is at risk. Well, I, you look, first of all, the BBC itself is incredibly important as an institution. Yes. So... I think that's possible. Plus, we're operating in a rather febrile political environment. Yes. And I'm more used to the commercial arena. I'll let other people judge, you know, whether the noise was proportionate. Obviously, I'm partial in that, I think. <laughs> um, was it proportionate? What's your view? Look, I think if people bothered to get to grips with the facts, they would see why Heppenstall said, in itself, it doesn't invalidate the appointment. Yes. 
And he also said, I was not involved in facilitation. I wasn't involved in any loan. And he wrote, I'm happy to report that. Yes. So it was entirely confined to simply sh- asking for Mr. Blythe to, to be in contact with the cabinet secretary, which yes. it turns out actually, as it happens, never happened. Yes. So, but you still resigned, though. Of course, because, because like- by the time the thing got reported, my presence could have challenged a perception of the impartiality of the BBC, because also people don't understand the role of the chairman. Mm. There's a lot of confusion. Mm. I mean, even sophisticated people think somehow the chairman gets involved in editorial decisions. And therefore, you know, for example, some people on the DCMS committee would would have felt that. Mm. So there's a lot of ignorance about the role of the chairman and the role in governance. But you've got to deal with ignorance as it exists. And the consequences of the controversy meant that particularly going into something, you know, with a general election or the rest of it, yes. then any time the BBC would report one way or another, people could question it, its impartiality. Who, who, who leaked it? I don't know. A chat it. between you and Simon Case in a room and no one else is there. How does that get out? I, I've no idea. You, you, you would know better than I do. I because, don't know better because than you. Because you, 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 you are the reporters who... But you know how the circle of Well, let me put it this spread. way. I, I suspect that I wasn't the target. No, you weren't. You know, you, you conform you, you judgments. Were, you were collateral damage. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Have you spoken to Boris Johnson since all this happened? Has he said? I had a brief chat where he said, <laughs> what the hell's going on? And I said, well, it is what it is. And that's basically yeah. it. You went to see him in checkers. You're, you've been named against the checker during lockdowns. Are, are, the, are the police in touch with you about this? No. No. Not, no, it was, well, it was, we met in a garden. We yes, had a conversation it, and I was batting for the BBC. So I'm <laughs> perfectly content with what happened. And that was after I'd been appointed as the chair. Do you think as a Tory, a Tory supporting chairman of the BBC, there's always a target on your back at the BBC? Well, look, I think the, I think the short answer is there's always, I mean, when there was a Labour supporting chair, mm. there's a target. Yeah. On. Gavin but, Davis. And cor- correct, exactly. Back. So, yes, I, I, I think the short answer is yes. Mm. More than but, if there's a Labour supporting chairman. No, no, no. Oh. no I, I think actually, I think that it's sufficiently important institution that whoever is the chair you know is vulnerable let me put it that way Mm. why do it well (laughs) (laughs) i mean good people should apply it's an institution that critically matters full of talented people it does matter and it needs to survive and it faces existential threats yeah so we'll come to those in a minute but your mates Mm. are thinking looking at you richard going richard you're stellar career at Goldman Sachs you've done all this stuff you've got your charity work you know you've Mm. dabbled in politics a bit you're giving money here and there when it's Mm. but but why expose yourself to this is the question that you might be asked I mean look it's it's this first of all it's a great country and it's been good for me and my family and and I come from you know two or three three generations ago refugees coming to the country so I really appreciate it I think it's fabulous I think that I've had benefits as a result of being here, and I think I come from a family culture and all the rest of it, which yeah. is give back. So that's why after the crash, I went to the Bank of England on the Financial Policy Committee in terms of financial stability, and that's why <clears throat> I got involved in mm. the Institute of Cancer Research and, mm. and other areas. And, so and that's why, and that, and that's why I, resp- I think I do believe that if people can bring to bear their skills with public service, they should seek to do so. What would you advise yourself if you go back as you, you, your time travelling? If you went back to the end of twenty twenty, you'd say, "Richard, don't take the job." Or would you say, "No, 
no. You I'm, don't regret your two and a half no, years? Look, no, of course no, not. No, no, not Because you've been chairing of BBC. <laughs> no, but also, I think they're fantastic people. I've learned a lot from this experience. I'm a bit older and wiser than I was. I hope I haven't lost my sense of humour. But at the same time, it's been a painful period for Quite. me. But, no, I think people should, and I would hope to myself, continue to do public service if you can. Well, we'll come on to your plans for the future in a second. You, you don't feel any mm. sense you're, that the BBC staff are out to get you. No, it wasn't personal. It wasn't personal. And, and I think But actually, being a Conservative friend of Boris Johnson well, no, because, could be a look, thing for the BBC, maybe? I mean, look, journalists were certainly talking to people at the BBC. Yeah. And I think what they found out is that anybody who interacted with me at the BBC felt that I'd been effective, mm. independent and impartial in everything that I did. Mm. And so I was actually gratified by that. And, you know, had there been any sense of me uh, not being an effective chairman... Yeah, the press. Would well, no one, no one said that <coughs> exactly. So, so I think the the BBC period has, has been a good period for me, and, and it hasn't ended the way I wanted to. No. My concern is I hadn't finished the job. Yes. And there's a tremendous amount of work to do, and uh, for the BBC to survive and thrive. Was the reporting proportionate? Of what? Of you? Of your situation? The BBC. Well, um, you know, I'm partial. So, well, I, what, I so think, what do you think? I think there are <laughs> other things going on, like a war in Europe. You know, massive com- potential conflict between China and, and the US. Mm. Cost of living crisis. Cost of living crisis. I was surprised to find myself as lead items on this issue, but that's editorial independence for it. The BBC it? would have reported it the same way had it been a Labour support. Oh, totally, Labor. totally. I mean, yes. you think back to. Well, they had a duty, in yes. fact. To go over to, the to top, be, maybe. Well, I mean, to, be, well, to be seen to be yeah. independent and objective, and I respect that. Yeah. Is the BBC biased? Is the BBC biased? No. I mean, the BBC... Against from the time right, to against the right, which no. is what the right always tell us. Look, from time to time, the BBC will make mistakes here and there. And you and your listeners think about things on a partisan issue in terms of political parties. I think most people are more concerned with uh, the bigger issues. So that's why we have the BBC's addressing partiality, and that's why we did tax and spend review, getting to the fundamentals. Also, there's going to be one on migration. Mm. So I think... The issues are that the BBC needs to be a platform which presents truth. And there's no doubt in my mind, um, particularly with the leadership of Deborah Turnus on the news side, but also Charlotte Moore elsewhere, that impartiality is the number one issue Mm. because it's also a fantastic opportunity for the BBC to define itself. In a live reporting environment where we have global distribution on radio, on television, on the web, Will mistakes be made in headlines and articles from time to time? Yes, Yes, but this is the critical issue. Critical issue, is the BBC now got a mentality which is is constructive when it reviews, if it makes mistakes, how it addresses them and fixes them? And I believe it does. And culturally, the Mm. the big complaint from people who leave BBC and then say what it's like at the BBC is they say culturally there's a left-leaning bias within the structure, the people who... Bosses hire people like them, and you have this... When I arrived... And I asked people about this. They said two things. First of all, they said the BBC felt it had got it wrong on Brexit in terms of it hadn't really understood the country and reflected the country back to itself. That's, that's the, yes. the BBC. The other thing the BBC people told me, which I don't think many people disagree with, is that the media industry, people who go into the media, media industry tend to have a, a left of centre position. Mm. So then the question is, in doing their jobs, do they bring those biases to bear? And what I do know is that with what has been, if you look at it, a quite interesting 10-point partiality plan, mm. the BBC is doing everything it can to address that. Yes. You know, whether it's whistleblowing, whether it's addressing groupthink, yes. whether it's impartiality reviews, and raising the importance of impartiality as defining the BBC. 
and how we deal with complaints, etc., etc. So whatever the individual feelings that people have, I do believe the BBC right now, certainly BBC that I was part of, is seeking to be impartial in everything that it does. Did you challenge it when you were internal there, when you were in there? Well, of course. There's, there's, you, would, you would say to the chairman and say, well, what's that, what's that about? How can no, I? there's an editorial guide. Well, there's an ed- there is an editorial guideline standard committee. Post-broadcast, mm. there have been processes that are run by the executive, but at the same time, they do define the brand and they are of strategic importance. So in terms of the impartiality plan, having non-execs and external members of the editorial guideline standards committee, which re- does review complaints, is reviewing where they're getting that committee is, is very important but that's all to do with both what we set out in terms of the rules of engagement for for the people and then looking and analyzing any breaches yes. after they did happened. you ever complain personally about anything when you no. were there no. you probably felt like you couldn't because you're the chairman it would be me no i no. think i think that if there yeah. had been something you know egregious i would simply would have said to tim are you across this and tim would say yes i'm across so you think the bbc isn't biased towards the left no, I don't think I don't think it is. I think I look. I'm. I mean, maybe I speak on this. Right. My, I'm a centrist myself. Mm. Whatever people you know have their. Yeah. All people have their. So Boris Johnson. What? Well, I don't know. If he, I don't know if he's a centrist or not. But I certainly am a centrist, and I think that's where the the BBC sits. Mm. And, I and think, therefore, it knows. Bo- it knows both sides. Doesn't it? Well, it, it provides due impartiality. It doesn't necessarily have moral equivalence. Mm. You know, when people process information when they consume it from the media, yes. they do with, with their existing opinions, and if it's at variance with their point of view, yes. <laughs> then, then they then they may see it as a bias uh, issue from their own bias. So, yes. so the BBC will continue yes. to get criticisms. Yes, I hope you don't mind me asking. You mentioned your, your Jewish her- heritage, and I'm afraid there's, there's anti-Semitism claims were part of the reporting of this mm. the cartoon by Martin Rousen, who you were at mm. school with. A grim, have you spoken to him? Oh uh, no, I haven't. No. No, and do you, do you think that was part of the of the reporting at all? Not at no, all. No. no, no. I think that no. was unusual that was unu- and unfortunate. So looking ahead to the BBC, the BBC's future. Should the next chairman be not a party donor to any party, or chairwoman, or chair? Forgive me, chairperson. Exactly. Chair. I don't think being involved or caring about politics in this country should uh, disqualify people. I do feel that that as a result of my own experience that I had in the media industry beforehand, and I'd, you know, I'd started a, a YouTube channel, I'd been an advisor mm. to media companies. Mm. In fact, I'd looking at bidding for ITV with Greg Dyke in the past, yes. etc. In the, my private equity world, you know, sports rights yeah. and, and other media investments. So I had experience in, in the sector, and I don't think the fact that, that mm. I had donated to the party, and I think the last party donation was 2010, mm. should have disqualified me. But it, it does mean that in the recruitment process they need to assure themselves that the chair person will take as a primary objective the strength of the BBC as an independent organisation mm. and w- which should behave in an impartial manner. So there will be questions to be asked if somebody is partisan. Yes. For example, an ex-politician. And we've had a politician. Yes, there. Chris Patton. Right. So but the critical issue is what is the function in this governance of the chair? And the chair is there to be part of the non-executive, to hold the executive to account. The executive execute. It's, the non-execs do not execute. And this is the misunderstanding. But what, 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 why do governments of different colours appoint chairman, chair people, chair persons who are similar to their view, their, their worldview. Well, Labour did it, the Tories did it. Well, no, look, Gavin was in conflict, you know, so... It's Gavin may, Davis. Gavin Davis. Ex-Goldman Sachs it, banker. It may have been that his Labour wife worked in Downing Street, yes. but he was forced out by number 10. 
similarly, I had accusations. Uh, number 10 were irritated with me that I'd gone native when I was batting aggressively for the BBC. Yeah. You may have Over heard the license fee. And license fee and other things. So yes. it, it's around the individual okay. and their competence to be a chair in, in this corporate governance mode. Do they know what it is to be chair of a corporation, to be competitive with Netflix, competitive with Spotify, Amazon, Apple, for the BBC to succeed globally? That's what they have to have the competence to Absolutely. do. Absolutely. That's where the challenge is. Would you advise your friends to, to apply for the job? Who's asked you so far? No one, no one has asked me yet. No one has asked me yet. <laughs> Would you advise them to go for it? Yes, I would. Yes. I mean, I'd say, look, you know, think very carefully about the nature of the political environment in the UK with the extraordinary sort of angertainment that exists in the, politi in, in the political discourse. Gosh. Where what does that mean, angertainment? Well, it, I think Malcolm Turnbull coined that phrase, which Just is news is turning into angertainment mm. in the desire to actually get clicks and connection or clips and connection, there's now a different tone in the discourse which has a lot of ad hominem attacks, fair and unfair. Mm. And unfortunately, we're in that situation with an organisation like the BBC in a way that I'd personally underestimated, and that's what I'd say. So be, just be ready for it. Yeah, and make sure, you and your make sure you and your family know what you're getting into. But the benefits are huge, of course, as you say. That, that's the negative. The benefits are huge. Well, the, the benefit is... That you're, it, you're shaping the national conversation at the top of... A but, also, I know, uh, but this is of... I think the success of the BBC is of global importance. Yeah. Take the World Service, for example. We can get into the funding of it, which needs to be fixed, and the government needs to play a more active role in it, away from licence fee pairs. But the real issue is the BBC has a fantastic opportunity to deliver truth globally and to be a valuable form of soft power where digital communication can be more powerful uh, than bombs and rockets in terms of shaping the global political discourse and therefore addressing issues like conflict and driving values like democracy forward. You mentioned the World Service there. You're concerned about the funding of it? because Yes, totally. Because the value of it globally, the soft yeah, power I, level... I call on the, the Foreign Office, the DCMS and the Treasury to recognise when Osborne put mm. forward taking away from the government the funding of the World Service, the BBC, that may have been fine then, it's not fine now, and because the BBC is short on terms of its capacity to deliver competitive content, funding for that, particularly as a result of the licence fee, and it has a duty to the licence fee payers to deliver content to them in their households. And that is not the World Service. But the World Service itself is of massive national importance in terms of our soft international, power. International importance. Yeah, but national in terms of our global um, soft power. Yeah. So for the UK's place in the world, the BBC can play an extraordinary role in the perception of the UK. I mean, it's, it's one of our strongest global brands, and it's a means for us so to... So what needs to be done? A, a grant, annual grant? To replace the, the yeah, the I, I, th I think the government million. No, the well, I think the government needs to take on. I think it's it's yeah. going to be to take it over. You know, I mean, if you look at the billions that the Americans now are putting into it, the Chinese, the Russians, the, into the Turks, what? into into, into, into in broadcasting and digital mm. communication in their part propaganda. Truth needs to be there to counter it. The BBC is an extraordinary vehicle to do that with a legacy brand mm. and a very capable journalists. A global workforce able to so hive it away from the BBC. And no, the no, not at all. Fund well, it properly. Fund it properly. Fund it properly, and we start ahead of the game. We have the best brand globally, mm. so to defund it is an act of global harm, mm. 
done and uh, self-harm self-harm by the uk i think so because i think the bbc being successful is good for the uk the license fee is a big debate um it's mm. up for review you're nearly leaving we're in the pub no one's mm. listening to any of this podcast well, no what, what can replace it or should it be replaced well i need to come back to something you raised before why does the government get involved in the appointment of the chair and that's because currently we have a mandatory payment of a license fee and we operate in a democracy mm-hmm. and from time to time we have elections And the BBC needs to be held to account by Parliament. And one of the ways to do that is to have representative of the nations in the chair that are effectively appointed by the government, which has a mandate from the people. So that's the connection. You're the democratic rapper almost on the BBC. Well, but that's why the government gets to make an appointment. But once appointed, they have to act in the interest Mm -hmm. of the BBCs. Mm -hmm. So I think there is a logic behind it that it's not self-appointed, but the, the representatives of the people get to choose. In terms of the actual mandatory payment, there will be a charter renewal. I happen to be in favour of it. I think of it the, the BBC as a public service broadcaster. In a world where societies can get polarised, just look what's going on in France right now. The role of media and the role of a media to counter social media is incredibly important in terms of education, social cohesion yeah. and universality, which is not driven by commercial terms. There are ideologues who have a legitimate view. I don't agree with it that people should just be free to just buy what they want. And to my mind, they're missing what a public service broadcaster brings to the fabric of society. And then the other dimension is it's a secret weapon in terms of driving competitive advantage in the creative industries in the UK. And that's one of the industries for the future Mm -hmm. in terms of our success as a nation and our economic development. So I think the BBC fulfills both a cultural role in terms of society but also an economic role, and that's underestimated. And that's understood, but how should it be be paid for is the question. Well, and so I would be in favour of a form of a mandatory payment. Currently, the licence fee, one issue which is it's regressive. Yeah. Flat for which may need to be addressed. So poorer people have to to pay. Pay the same price. How would you, so you'd have a different scales of it, would you link link it to the the income? My last board meeting was last Tuesday. So I think it's too early for me. I'm still too close to some of the analysis that I've Mm. seen to be able to communicate where. But, but, but you've but, left it you left at the end of June, so you've left the BBC. Yeah, the end of June wasn't that long ago. <laughs> okay. And a day is a long time in politics. You could have degrees of licence fee, couldn't yeah. you? Yeah, so you can look at models around the world. There's broadband tax, there's household tax, mm. and on council there's licence fee. Mm. Change itself is disruptive in mm. terms of moving from one mechanism that maybe works to another. And there are challenges. The two challenges, mm. obviously, are that it's regressive and also that the collection process can fall harder on women. And that's because women are often answer the door when when, of course, when, when you do when you do in, inspecting who's paying. Co- co- correct. So it's imperfect. The question is: Is there a better system, and what is the disruptions going to be caused to, to changing it? And this is for a debate for Parliament. Yeah, yeah, I know, you know and, and poll politicians. Now, I think both sides broadly support the BBC. So I think there are, as I said, ideologues uh, who have a different view, um, but I think they're in the minority. And then it's up for the BBC to actually deliver content. So when it comes to the charter renewal, it remains an important part of uh, household entertainment, communication, education. Surely it should be de- decriminalised, though. That's, that's the, the big issue for those on the right, is the fact that you can, can be prosecuted for not paying the licence. You, you can be, but the, it's one of these issues, which is the sanction itself drives behaviour, which means you don't need... There prosecution. aren't many prosecutions, are there, is the point. But Correct. for the individuals who are prosecuted, it's Correct. dreadful. Whereas if you go into the civil litigation you actually can increase the amount of litigation that would take place so it's, yes. it's not as obvious as you think of course there's a natural emotional 
reaction, which is why should we why should we sanction why should there should be a sanction? Mm. And then you get a common good as a result of people paying their license fee. Mm. You get a common good, which is you get an incredible value mm. for what people are actually paying on a household basis. So if mm. you think about radio, the websites, you think about sports, you think about children. And we've all got a stake in it. Lo- exactly. That's why, that's why Correct. you're here. But, I mean, yes, you're exactly. not the chairman of Sky. You're the BBC chairman. And then we, some of my... my well, I'm not here as the BBC. I was the BBC chairman last week. I'm not the BBC chairman. chairman. But, but the point is everyone has a stake in what you do. And Correct. What you say. And that's, Absolutely. That's part of the conversation. Yeah. Gary Lineker. You've left now. What's your view of him? Should he be he great be, goal scorer? Great goal scorer. Fantastic yeah. commentator. Great commentator. Yeah. Good, good podcaster. Yes, very good, and also obviously a good entrepreneur in terms and of a good, and a big critic of government policy. Is that okay? Well, look, there is a review going on. Yeah, it's going to go to the director general and the executive team. They will then present it to the board, and clearly, there's something that needed to be addressed. Yep. And you know, social media engagement is changing over time. This has given an opportunity for the BBC to reflect on where it needs to be with freelancers versus employees, news, non-news, yeah. and bring it together more systematically. And, and sign-ups to some kind of charter, depending on your status with the BBC. I, I you know, the internal report hasn't been completed yet, but yeah. when it's done, yeah. yeah. What are your plans for the future, Richard Sharp? You know, I've enjoyed, as I said, the engagement with the media industry. But at the same time, during that period, I put into a trust some of the other business interests I had. A blind trust. Yeah, which so it's been. So I'm now going to actually this week engage with it. And some of the areas that interest me are medtech. Mm-hmm. One of the teams I'm working with is a team of mathematicians who are bringing algorithmic strength to a number of different areas and disciplines. And uh, I'd like to get involved with that, particularly now we're entering an AI world. And then I'd like to think in some way the kind of, if you like, successes I had when I worked in the Treasury would indicate, or the Bank of England, that there's still an opportunity for me to uh, help with the government sector well just in some under a government of either hue to me I still believe in public service and if I can help out now I have I am involved in you know a refugee advocacy organisation one also in terms of giving advancement to underprivileged children in terms of career advancement as well so I'll also get more involved in some of my philanthropic and trustee activity Rishi Sunak said he was mildly miffed was the quote when he took the job he, Would you want to go back to work with him? He's your old friend from Goldman Sachs. He did want me to, to stay. He, he knows you from the old days. Well, well he used to work for me. Yes, and, that's right. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for him, and as, as I also do for the leader of the opposition. But I'd rather stay away from anything that has a, a political yes, angle to it. might be wise. And although, you know, I, I obviously respect his competences uh, fantastically, I'd prefer to have public service that plays more to my commercial skills. Mm. And, and stay away from the political arena. Do you think, looking back, you were naive in any sense? At one point was not making a full note of that chat with Simon Case, possibly. I mean, Were you too trusting? No, it's no, a brutal no, world, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, as I said, Marit, the error was mine. Of course, I've looked back at it and thought, God, what a bloody idiot. <laughs> right, okay. I mean, you know, because... I think you're being harsh on yourself. I mean, I think... That, yeah, you know, but what Heppenstall said, it wasn't a conflict. It wasn't yeah. a perceived conflict. Yeah. It was a potentially perceived conflict. But you felt you had to walk, and I wasn't clear why you had to walk at the time. I had to walk because my presence and the controversy itself meant that when the BBC was reporting, people would attack the BBC. And what was more important in making that decision was the BBC, not Richard Sharp. And that was the right thing to do. Yeah. I'm leaving the Telegraph for 20 years, off the GB News. Any advice? Well, you mentioned that you're going to take time off. And as you were saying it, I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure that's wise. I think it's a fantastic opportunity for you to engage with 
broader developments mm. around the world. Because if I'm a critic of you and maybe this sort of area, we're sitting right in the heart of Westminster, yeah. is that there's an incredible myopia, which really means it, everybody's looking at, at trivial things around this area rather than some of the more fundamental things that matter. And they are big things going on out there. So I'd say... Well, AI being a big thing. Well, one of the reasons we had the tax and spend impartiality review, because the question is, is our discourse around some of the economic challenges we have focused on the right but things? But that's in the BBC, the, wasn't it? But there's a reason why I drove yeah. that. It's because there's a lack of knowledge. And if you look at the hierarchy, mm. there's data. Data leads to information, okay? Information leads to knowledge, but knowledge doesn't mean understanding, Above knowledge is understanding. So the question is, people can certainly have the information about what's going on. In order to report on these issues effectively, you need to have understanding and arguably wisdom and technical knowledge to bring the yep. arguments to less about personalities and yep. trivia yep. and focus more on the fundamental policy issues. And these really matter. And I think that there's around, whether it's this issue, whether it's migration or other areas, it's an opportunity for you away five weeks yes, I should have think about to that. actually research yeah. and think yeah, and get yeah. to grips with the bigger, well, you, whatever you regard the bigger issues are, hmm. and then bring your political analysis to bear with that level it's of It's what you're describing there. So it, the, that review you're describing there was the frustration for some people on the right might be that the question is always led, what can the government do when, in fact, the government shouldn't do things sometimes? Is that, that No, I think it's more that the arguments often default to trivial issues mm. rather than the more substantive issues and getting mm. to grips with the detail. And I think that's mm. because, you know, reporters are stretched, they're operating well with a lot of things going on, and they default to their comfort zone which is around personalities, because that's often more interesting mm. than the substance. By the way, it's bloody hard to get to grips with the substance mm. of economic policy, debt to GDP, mm. fiscal deficits, currency movements, balanced payments deficits, twin deficits. Mm. Th these are tough issues, but the, the right now, they're, yeah. they're relevant in a high inflationary world where we're worried about growth and productivity, and that comes back to what defines welfare for people mm. in an unequal society so what, what, back to you there what have you learned about y yourself through all this you've, you've you've been through the mill it wasn't something mm. you didn't think it was coming but it did ha did happen what you've learned about yourself i think probably to anticipate the unanticipated and take a step back to be wiser mm. than i was in terms of the situation um and also i think to be philosophical you know own your own mistakes which i made and i probably haven't made the last mistake in my life i just this one was but you, you're learning from them of course of course and that's okay how will history remember richard sharp <laughs> bbc chairman <laughs> he tried his best he no, did no, some, no. Good, some good things oh no, no 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 I, I feel comfortable <laughs> that i've accomplished a lot in the last couple of years do i feel there's a, a legacy effect of my presence at the bbc absolutely it's got an outstanding board the executive have been, I think, we've engaged incredibly constructively in challenging conversations around budget, around getting fit for purpose, capital allocations, things that were never addressed before. So I think I've left it in a better condition than it was when I arrived. It just is the job hasn't finished yet. Well, Richard Sharp, just recently, until recently, chairman of the BBC, thank you for joining us this week for my last ever Chopper's Politics podcast. Well, Thanks. congratulations to you, and, and I hope your future brings success, albeit that it's with GB News. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. It was at this point that Richard had clearly enjoyed himself so much in the Red Lion pub that he ordered a round of black velvets, that's Guinness and champagne. So we tucked in. Why not? It's my last ever podcast.
Which is now going to let me talk so I have a drink. It's my first actual proper drink in this pub. Oh, there you are. You see. But, hey, doing this podcast. We haven't really done this before. Oh, really? Okay. That surprised me. Now, very, very slowly, because otherwise it's... Exactly. A round of, well, half pints of Guinness. We're now mixing it with champagne to create black velvets, which is a, an excellent way to end my time at Telling Off Drinking Black Velvets with the former BBC chairman at the Red Lion Pub <coughs> with some great friends. This is great. Dominic, well poured. Dominica is doing a fantastic job. Why do you like black velvet, Sir Richard Sharp? It tastes good and it feels good. Yeah. And um, it gives you iron. It gives you iron. It's good. It's got vitamins. It's got vitamins in. We all need vitamin B12s or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And Richard Sharp, do you think that that Twitter drives too much of the political discourse? Look, Twitter is incredibly valuable, and I think the world without Twitter for a moment. So uh, they rightly describe it, if you like, as a global town square. But at the same time, the question is, do the journalists have a proportionate view of what they hear on Twitter versus where society is as a whole? And I think that that's the issue. The issue is that Twitter often amplifies extreme views. And the journalists who and politicians who spend a lot of time on Twitter need to make sure uh, that they have a sense of balance. And I don't think we're quite there yet as a society. So put the phone down <laughs> well, and I talk th- to people. I think Elon Musk recently told people that they need to ha- have a life as well as Twitter. It's about balance and perspective. And I think we've gone through an, an era of engaging with social media where journalists and the media probably have a distorted view as a result of engaging with Twitter and they need to get a little bit of balance. And that's all for this week's Chopper's Politics podcast, listeners. The final ever episode. Blimey. If you want to get your fix of Chopper, I'll be gracing the airwaves of GB News from mid-August as their new political editor and head of politics. I hope to see you there. Thank you to my guest this week, Richard Sharp, the former chairman of the BBC. Thank you to my producers over the years, Andy McKenzie, Theodora Luludis, Louisa Wales, Giles Gear. Elliot Lampett, and many more. For more insights into the wonderful world of Westminster, please do turn up to The Telegraph's Daily Politics newsletter. It arrives straight into your email inbox every weekday, and the link for that will be in the show notes this episode. One thing that will carry on at The Telegraph is my weekly Peterborough Diary Gossip column, out every Friday at 7pm online and in Saturday's copy of The Daily Telegraph. Please do keep reading it. And from me personally over the years, thank you for listening. Without your support and feedback and loyalty to this podcast, it simply wouldn't have happened. It started back in March 2017 with an idea to have something to mark Brexit and why Brexit happened. It was called Chopper's Brexit Podcast. It became Chopper's Politics Podcast because guess what? Brexit was done, sort of. And here we are. Six years later, I'm a bit greyer. I've had a great time and I can't thank you enough. And as always, please do buy a copy of The Telegraph if you can, where you can. I know you won't regret it. But until next time, cheerio.